say no. Well, that's my two cents worth. How about you? Visit our website, kpfa.org. I'm Michael the Web Guy. Thanks for listening. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I am today's guest host, Kelly Out Romaris. I've known fine art photographer Catherine Westerhout for nearly 20 years. In the early days, we were co-workers at a legal publishing company. Catherine's a Renaissance woman who's been a lawyer, a tour guide, and even a cab driver. Now, at the age of 65, she is making photography her full-time career. No more law books, no more tours. Just devotion to the calling she's had since grade school. Recession be damned. Just before Thanksgiving 2008, Catherine and I sat in her loft in Oakland to talk about her maturation as an artist, the spiritual lure of structures and ruins, and the need for art in American education and society in general. Let's start with a little history. How old were you when you first started taking pictures? You know, I don't really recall, but my guess is around six or seven. I got a brownie camera for Christmas or my birthday or something like that. And that's when the fascination began. What did you take pictures of back then when that young? Everything that interested me as a preteen child. Pictures of my dog and pictures of my family. And when we went on vacation, piled everybody in the old Studebaker and went off to the uh, national parks. I took pictures of... Uh, I remember taking pictures of, what, Crater Lake, and I have a wonderful old picture that I took of cows that were blocking the, the highway, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't seek out exotic places. It was my own environment, and it was a way of bouncing all of that back to me. It was utterly fascinating. When did you start developing photographs? The printing of photographs. I remember having kind of a portable set up in the kitchen, you know, after dinner. Everybody clear it out and I finish washing the dishes or drying the dishes, depending on what my sister and I would agree to. And then I set up my darkroom in the kitchen and and began to make prints. And, you know, I was still a preteen when I did that. And your mother didn't mind all the chemicals in your kitchen? <laughs> no, apparently not. Were you encouraged by your family? Uh, I would rather say I wasn't discouraged because I, I was a very curious child and I constantly had projects going just on my own volition. And this was one of my projects, you know. I had a lot of freedom as a child. And, you know, the world wasn't a scary place back then and so I was constantly off on some adventure. But this was one of my uh, favorite projects. The first photograph I have uh, a memory of having captured an image, 
I remember I was out playing on the street and um, it was late in the afternoon and it was one of those days where there was a lot of haze on the uh, horizon so that you could actually look at the sun. It was the first time I ever saw the, the actual image of the sun. And I remember running home and grabbing my camera and climbing up on my father's shed in the back, which was his office, to make a photograph of that. It's the first memory of a photograph that I, that I have, other than the, you know, the just sort of domestic stuff. The point at which I became seriously involved, I was an adult then, this was in the 1960s, and I lived for about two plus years on um, the island of Idra in Greece, and I started photographing architectural elements, something that you see a lot of these days, but it was a, a kind of a new idea then, doors and windows and walls and that sort of thing, textural color, and... I was with my son's father, and a member of the family sent me a wedding present, which was a one-year subscription to, you know, these photography magazines. And I'd look forward to it coming every, every month, and I would literally read it from cover to cover with all the tips and uh, all of the technical jargon. And I just started to absorb it, and as I took pictures, I began to realize what kinds of controls I had over the result. And so I was very much an autodidact before I finished my degree at San Francisco State University in art with a photography uh, emphasis that was in the mid-70s. And you did various other things. You became a lawyer. I became a lawyer, <laughs> yes. I mean, I really got off track there. Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, I'm not sorry for that experience because... It was a wonderful political education, having uh, gone to New College, which at that time was the oldest public interest law school in the country. And it gave me a tremendous grasp of how the law and governance work in this country. Given how political I know you are, how come never, you never seemed, from what I've seen of your work, drawn to photojournalism? I think I did a bit of that. I remember documenting one of the Gay Freedom Day parades for Christopher Street in New York. It was the parade that uh, was um, very much focused on Anita Bryant and all of her machinations in Florida. And I found that very exciting. And I think there was an alter ego at work in me that ultimately wanted to be a, a photographer for National Geographic. I don't know any photographer that hasn't had that dream. But I discovered about 11, 12 years ago a genre of photography that, that touched something so deep in my psyche that I've been doing it ever since. And that, of course, is focusing on abandoned buildings in a way that most people don't. I mean, you get on Flickr and you feel like the same photographer is running around doing the same thing everywhere. I find a whole different experience in these buildings. And... It's not about urban detritus, and it's not about how clever I can be with colored lights at night or any of that sort of thing that you see a lot of. I discovered that light enters these buildings in the most extraordinary way, and it carries the color from outside the buildings, and the illumination and the color is just magical. And it's on another plane, that's the magic of photography, really, is that, you, I mean, you can approach subject matter from a whole range of concerns. 
What I found in these buildings is just pure magic. And the more I did it, the more magic I found. It's all about light and space. And some level of spirit that you can incorporate in this subject matter, it's there. Every building I've been in has a different feeling about it. And it's due primarily to the fact that different kinds of activity, you know, in each of these buildings took place there. And it, it leaves a residue that is palpable. And so I deal with a whole range of experiences inside these buildings. James Hillman, he's a Jungian psychologist, and he wrote an essay called The Practice of Beauty. And he talked about the importance of aesthetics in our architecture, in our culture, just generally, as a foundational aspect of our lives. And in that piece of writing, he talked about the experience of walking into a situation that literally takes your breath away. And I have that experience all the time. It was like finding a kindred spirit to read this remarkable piece of writing. When I see what is psychically life-changing in these buildings, that's when I put my tripod down and start to frame an exposure that focuses on what created that in a part of my body that is somewhere um, central in the solar plexus. The places that I seek out are usually, I would say, 19th century buildings into, oh, I would say uh, the 1940s at the latest. The 50s and 60s for architecture was internationally simply dreadful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've never been able to go into a building of that vintage and really create the work that I want to create because the beauty is not there. Because what I'm trying to capture is is a kind of yin-yang. There's a melancholy about the light. This time of year, it begins in uh, late August, early September, and uh, usually goes through uh, the better part of April. A kind of melancholy that is all about memory and time. I mean, photography is a time-based art form, and it does this sort of thing very well. I'm trying to balance that kind of melancholy with the beauty that's inherent in these buildings. And it's a very fine line there that I'm trying to achieve. So there is that sense of, you know, the ghosts of the past, which are in these buildings. It's, it's interesting, one of the, <laughs> the person who became my guide in the King's Park Mental Hospital on Long Island, we went up into the Belfry and... Uh, She was talking about the fact that she had done a video up there at one time. And she has a ghost on the video. It picked up a ghost. She swears to God, I would love to see that. And then she said, I'm going to go out on the roof and have a cigarette or something. And there I was, standing in the spot where she had been (laughs) when she photographed the ghost. And it was pitch black in there. I mean, it was what I was photographing was um, well over a minute long exposure. And that was a stressful moment, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, was it a friendly ghost? Was it a poltergeist? She described it was a man who who was dressed in a business suit. And she didn't feel that it was particularly ominous. But I would imagine there are lots of spirits uh, wandering around that mental hospital because um, 
It was the most extraordinary experience. It really was photographing there. How would you feel if you encountered a ghost while you were photographing? Uh, there would be a bit of discomfort um, to actually visually see a ghost. I've never seen one. But I feel sensitive to the obvious presence of something in these buildings because the, the buildings differ so much from one another in that regard. Probably the, one of the happiest days of photographing in, in my memory was inside um, the Fox Theater here in Oakland. I was the only person there and I was given complete carte blanche to photograph wherever I wanted to. That was before 9-11, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how hard it is to get, into, uh, to get permission to get into buildings now of any kind. But that was the happiest building I've ever been in. Obviously, people were there to be entertained and enjoyed themselves because with all of its subdued light and grandeur, it could also be very creepy, but it wasn't. I had so much fun photographing. It's a wonderful building. That's a fun building. I remember you took photographs of buildings built over on the Shell Mounds here in the Emeryville Oh, area. goodness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember saying when I saw one photograph in particular of doors that it reminded me of a Nazi concentration camp. <laughs> that's the other side, isn't it, that you have a place that's not so happy? I'm going to make an admission here. I got into that area, the old paint factory, that was apparently right on top of the the shell mound. The two pieces that I pulled out of that, the series of photographs that I took there, I titled Burial Ground, Burial Ground 1 and 2. I didn't know that I was on top of a Native American burial ground, and neither did the uh, people who were engaged in the development that replaced that old paint factory. But I remember going in one morning and was so discombobulated in that building that I, I spent hours photographing without any film in my camera. <laughs> it's an unusual thing to happen. I remember going in there uh, on one occasion with a friend of mine who said, excuse me, I'll meet you outside, but there's something creepy about this building, and I just don't want to be here. It had great beauty. The light in there was extraordinary. It was um, wonderful that I was able to get a couple of really remarkable pieces out of that, but it was very, very uncomfortable to be in there. I got in, I think, about three different occasions, something like that. About getting into buildings, you have talked about basically building spelunkers mm -hmm. that helped you get into places. Mm -hmm. what, what's that like? Well, a good number of the buildings that I've been in, somebody called me or in conversation mentioned something and so I've relied upon information from other people a wonderful resource now of course is the internet I'm doing a lot of work up in the Rust Belt since the beginning of last year worked in Detroit and in Buffalo and looking to expand that work and I get a lot of information surfing there's an inordinate amount of photographs on the internet that building spelunkers you know put on uh, Flickr for example not very interesting photographs, but certainly full of information about what's there. But my richest resource for access has been the preservation community. And I was just blessed with the most extraordinary people in Detroit. They just couldn't be more enthusiastic about bringing their city back. And they realized that I was doing something very positive 
in these buildings. And the first time I was there was in April of last year. And it ended badly, unfortunately, because I went through a floor of the Packard plant and went down about 18 feet and broke my pelvis in three places. But I was determined to get back on that horse, and I came back in October, and the preservation community threw me a party. There were over 100 people there who came just to encourage me in the work I was doing. It was extraordinary. I stayed with people. People opened their homes to me, and we continued to communicate. And three people flew out from Detroit for my opening last January that featured the Detroit work. So I've come to rely a lot on uh, preservation people because they're extremely passionate about the beauty of their architecture and wanting to bring these cities back again. I, I was in Buffalo last April. I haven't a clue how beautiful that city is. I mean, it's just... Their city hall, for example, is just... It's a deco building that has been completely restored that is just breathtaking. And that's just one example of many, many, many. Of course, Frank Lloyd Wright did a lot of work in the Buffalo area, and... There's been some preservation of some of his buildings there. You say that your work is undergoing a paradigm shift. What do you mean by that? Did I say that? Yes. <laughs> Twice an email to me. <laughs> I probably was referring to the fact that I'm becoming more and more drawn into the landscape, you know, the buildings. Um, when I was in um, Buffalo, I did a whole series uh, right on the Buffalo River there where the extraordinarily monumental grain elevators are located. I think it was Le Cabousier that likened them to uh, the pyramids in their scale, and it's true. So I found myself going outside and photographing the elevators from the outside as well as from the inside, and there's something pulling me outside the buildings as well as continuing on with the interiors. So maybe that's what I was referring to. Perhaps a greater context for the building? No, I don't. It's not about context. It's just about um, presence, I guess. I'm also very interested in the toxic landscape. Again, like dancing on the head of a pen. There's a photographer by the name of David Maisel, for example, who does the most extraordinarily beautiful aerial photographs of toxic dumps, the places in the environment that are completely dominated by chemicals and environmental horror seen from a distance. They're extraordinarily beautiful. And I don't find that a contradiction. Why not? Well, he's transforming something that's very negative into something that's very positive, and people are beginning to notice not just that they're compelling as a beautiful photograph, but it's also a consciousness raiser about what we're doing to the land. We live in a culture that is basically fundamentalist in its thinking. It's either black or it's white, and most people don't appreciate the grays in between. But it's, again, a very yin-yang kind of thing that life is about, you know? Now, as far as getting your work out, making it saleable, I remember very early on you were talking about the difficulties of being a woman artist. Uh, has that changed at all in the last 15 years? Oh, I think so. I think there are a number of things that come to play. Age is a factor, I think, too. Positive or negative? Uh, well, you know, there's that thing called productivity, and there's the tendency for galleries to sort of descend like vultures onto MFA programs to grab the talent at an early age because there's a lot of productivity. 
in students, potential productivity. The problem is, though, and it's certainly that in the situation in my case, is that it doesn't allow for the maturation of one's vision, and I'm a late bloomer. But it hasn't mattered because I've, I've had some success. And I think ultimately the real good gallerists are the ones that recognize mature work regardless of how old the person is or what their sex is. But I think sexism in the art world, there's some of that going on. But it's passe. It really is. It's not only politically incorrect, but you miss a lot of good stuff if you're going to be that narrow-minded. You and I have talked time to time about the place of art in the schools and in society in general. We have No Child Left Behind and the interest in standardized testing. Oh, Lord. Various things, sports, music, art, all considered frills, nice if you can have them with the economy, bad mm-hmm. more... First thing to go. First yeah. thing to go. Uh, obviously, you don't agree if that's a good idea. It's standing on its head, you know. Um, the creative process is at the foundation of critical thinking. And um, without critical thinking, education is useless, you know. It's not just a matter of memorizing and parroting back. It's a matter of um, being able to make judgments and learn from um, a whole range of sources about whatever subject or I mean just to learn how to be alive and embrace the wonders around us we live in a country first of all that doesn't support the arts so how could we possibly make the argument that it should be the foundation of our education right I mean we just miss the boat somehow it would take generations to turn it around the it's, United States is still a young country compared uh, to Asia and Europe. <laughs> well, you know, we did come from someplace else, but we didn't bring a whole lot of culture with us, did we? It's a rather sad history, full of exploitation and um, really missing the boat in terms of what is important in a society. We don't have culture in America, and it makes it very hard to be an artist here. That is the biggest barrier to working and and selling and making a living as an artist in America is because we don't have culture. We have public spectacle, but we don't have culture. Very little of it. And that which is supported, you know, to the greatest degree are basically the, um, the arts that amuse the awning class because nobody else can afford it. So it's one of the, the great sorrows that we don't have the sensitivity to realize how important the arts are. It's what makes us human. It's what distinguishes us from other species is our ability to make art, to make culture. That's what we're about. And there's no support for it. And there's no value in it other than as a commodity. And um, it makes it hard. makes it very difficult. The Internet is facilitating a great deal. And, of course, the challenge is to keep it open. But it has to be more than that. It has to be an integral part of a system that starts with early education. The extraordinary difference between Europeans and, and Americans, because I spent some time, not only my experience in Greece, because Europeans were pervasive on the island, and I met 
many wonderful artists who were working on the island and then lived for a time in Europe, in London and in Germany. And what was so unique about those cultures is how integrated everybody was, business people as well as students and in every walk of life, how important art was to their experience of being alive. And they weren't uncomfortable around it. Americans are uncomfortable around the whole subject because they don't quote-unquote understand it. And it's not a process that involves understanding. That's irrelevant to the whole subject. It's not about understanding. The comfort with which Europeans experience art and talk about art and it's part of the whole fabric of their lives. It's totally integrated. We live in poverty of the spirit when we don't have that opportunity from the earliest age. You've traveled a lot in Asia as well. Have you seen that same attitude in Asia that people are more integrated with art? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Because of the age of their culture and and, um, the importance of the preservation of their culture through museums and, and other public pursuits, it's very much there. I was in China a great deal and Southeast Asia, a very rich Indeed. So what's next for you? I've got to get back out in the field. You know, I didn't travel this October. My son was here and a number of things distracted me. So I'm getting into some buildings here locally in the Bay Area to keep from going crazy. (laughs) I'm not photographing right now. But I'll be out on location uh, come early spring, uh, back up in the Rust Belt someplace. Where would you like to go that you haven't gone yet? Well, there are just a whole range of areas up in the, in the Rust Belt. This is where it's most apparent, the decay of industry in this country. So so you're not really going to go outside the country again for a while? So I know you've done some no. work outside the country. No, I was for a time represented in London by a gallerist who suggested that I focus on my own country. I had done some work in Southeast Asia that I showed to him and... You know, the British think it was all done in the 19th century by them anyway, so... And I I thought a great deal about it, and I think he was absolutely right. And it's something that um, is a part of me because I'm a part of this country. And I'm very compelled to focus now on my my own country. Is it kind of like the version of what they tell writers about, write about what you know? Uh, That may be an aspect of it starting this whole project right here in the Bay Area and and finding it to to be extraordinarily rich in its architectural history. I mean, it doesn't go back that far. The gold rush is is not... uh, But we did make beautiful buildings in the late 19th century into the early uh, 20th century. I'm just astonished at the beauty of the architecture up in the Rust Belt. It's just amazing. And it's something I didn't know anything about because they don't teach architecture in school. And they should. They should teach the arts just as soon as students can read and write and see. It's a wonderful way to teach history, to combine it with the aesthetics of the period. I hated history because it just dangled in in the midst of nowhere. No context about what was going on in any other part of the world. I think I had something like three or four U.S. history courses starting with high school into college and never understanding what the cultural context of what was happening here, what it came from, and what was happening elsewhere. 
I mean, we're very provincial here in the United States. We think we're the center of the world, and it's not important to know about what's going on around us. You've been listening to fine art photographer Catherine Westerhout of Oakland speaking about art, spirit, and abandoned buildings. Her website is catwest.com. That's K-A-T-W-E-S-T dot com. This has been Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm Kelly L. Ramirez. Thanks for listening. Destiny. My true sisters and brothers. Fridays, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Voice is catching up. Voice is catching up. Watch out, child. Watch out, child. Babylon falling down. Falling down. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is just about 3.30. Stay tuned next for Free Speech Radio News.